two real quick. As you're turning, I want to welcome all of our guests. We're so thankful to have you guys here. I know several of you here are, are here uh, for the baptism to see Ashley and, and Chloe be baptized. We are so grateful to get to, to sit in church and worship with you this morning and, and get to spend time with you. And I hope you feel welcome. And I hope you know that this is God's house. It's not mine or any other place, anybody else's place. This is just a place where God's people come uh, just to worship Him and just to learn of Him and yeah. where we can be Everybody. together away from all the troubles and stuff that's sometimes going outside. Amen. So we're thankful that you're here. We're thankful each and every one of you are here. Um, but we'll read here in Mark chapter 5. We're going to skip around a little bit. We're going to read two sex- sections because that's what we want to focus on. Um, but we'll, we'll reference the other section here in just a second as well. But Mark chapter 5, we'll start at verse 21. Okay, very familiar scripture. It says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So we'll skip here uh, to verse uh, 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult of those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. When he had, had when he had them put uh, when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, uh, Talitha Kuma, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given. Her to eat. So that's Mark 5, 21 through 24, and 35 through 43. It's the story of Jairus and, and, and his, his daughter that was that was resurrected. Um, and we're, we're, we, I love this story, love learning about it um, growing up, and I've preached on it several times. But, but we want to, to give you what God has laid on, on our heart this morning. And I want to start by talking about being helpless. All right, being helpless. Uh, the feeling of being helpless is an, is an awful feeling. Um, feeling being helpless is, is something where you look at a, a situation where there is physically nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about the situation. You are you are helpless. No matter how strong you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter what you have or what you do not have, who you are, you can do nothing. And there's sometimes when I talk about certain issues, certain topics, I would love to have the time just to go around and have each one of us give some kind of testimony about that issue, about being helpless. Because I know from my own life there have been many times where I've been helpless. There was nothing I could do. No matter what I, how far I tried to push myself, no matter what extent I went to, no matter how much, what, what kind of desire I had in my life, in my heart, there's nothing I could do. There's nothing I can do. Helpless. My dad used to pastor a church up in Elk Park. It's in North Carolina. Funny about how elk names and stuff connect sometimes. Uh, I never saw an elk up there, though. And I still haven't seen an elk up here, so I think you're all are lying. I just don't think there's, there's elks. 
Um, I saw elks in Cherokee, but I haven't seen them anywhere else. Um, but it's called Curtis Creek was the was the church my dad pastored. Just a small church, about this size, maybe a little smaller. Same kind of community. Um, but it was kind of up on a hill, on a mountain kind of. Um, and they had graded out one part and put up, you know, kind of some, some things to hold in some gravel and stuff to make some a parking area. But right after the parking area, you just, it just dove off, right, in, in, into some woods and, and trees and stuff. Um, and pretty steep embankment there. Um, but you only parked there. We didn't do anything else around there. Well, it was homecoming service or something. We had dinners all the time there like we do here. Um, and mom and dad were busy. Dad was being the pastor, mom was being the pastor, you know, running around everything like that. And there's three three of us. At that point, I don't know how old I was, but I know Luke was, Luke's my youngest brother. He was five-ish, maybe, uh, maybe six, uh, something like that. And in the commotion of everything, getting everything ready and whatnot, you know, we lost track of Luke, as to, as to happen. He, he was a very rambunctious child growing up, um, so it was very easy to kind of lose track. Um, so he went, and he was fascinated with cars at that time, I guess, as most kids are, you know, how they go and move big things and whatnot. And uh, he got up in the car um, and came fooling around and, and knocked it out of gear and somehow put it in reverse. Well, Mom and Dad had backed up into their spot up to this embankment, right? And it was about that time that Mom and Dad realized they had missed him. They were looking around for him trying to see where he was, right? And they, and they realized they saw where he was, what he was doing, so they began to see. So the car rolled back. Now, they were probably, you know, not quite a football field away, but they were a good distance away. And, it was, you know, they had a, to walk around. They, they, they couldn't get to him. There was no way. They, they, were, they were helpless. In that moment, they were helpless. All they could do was stand there and watch in just this helpless point of point of view of I can't do anything in this situation. There was this, I don't know, I think she was 70 or 80, maybe 90-year-old woman. Uh, I think her name was Mary. And she happened to be up there and noticed him and jerked him out of the car before the, the van went over the edge. And, and when they towed it out, I mean, there was, there was a V... Like, I mean, like, it, it looked like a formation of, you know, geese was flying. I mean, it was a, a pretty big V in the back of that van. We, you know, Luke wasn't buckled up at that time. He's just five. So who knows what would have happened if he would have went off. And thankfully, Mary saved him and everything. And, um, but I, can ima- I can't imagine, I can imagine a little bit better now than I could before now that I have my own child, that feeling of helplessness to stand there at a distance and not be able to do anything not be able to change the situation no matter how badly you want it to. Physically, there was nothing you could do. This was the feeling that Jairus had at this moment. Nothing he could do. It says that he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, now this society, the culture at this time, well, it was very uh, theologically driven. It was, it was religious driven. The, the synagogue, the temple, they were a, a main point of, of the culture. The trade went through there. The money went through there. Everything went and was, was decided a lot by the, the temple, the synagogue. So Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue, had great power, had great authority, had a position, had a title. And with that title, he had access to things that other people wouldn't have had access to. And his, and his job gave him means, financial means at that time, to provide a good and happy life for his children and family to have everything they wanted. In other words, in other words Jairus had done everything he could to put himself and his family in a situation where they would never be wanting They would never be lacking. They would never have a desire for anything. If anything came up, he would have the ability and the access to things so that they would have what they needed. He would never have to feel helpless. But here he is. Helpless. 
no, no matter what his title was, no matter how many people had to come to him and ask permission for anything, no matter what was going on in his life, no matter what he could have bought or who he could have brought in or what, could, what he could have changed in the culture around or what, he could have, what decisions he could have made about that town or whatnot, he could not change this. He was, he was helpless. And many of us fall in that same place, right? We, we spend our lives trying to plan and trying to work and trying to do things to, to prepare for these innumerable number of, of things and consequences and potentialities that we think might happen or that we want to problem solve and figure out a way to get out of this. If this were to happen or if this were to come about, I want to have a plan for that. I want to be prepared for that. I don't want to end up in a place and be helpless. But if we've lived too long, we realize that no matter what kind of plans we put into place, and no matter how good we do at those things, and no matter what all we've done, things will happen that leave us helpless. We didn't plan for that. We didn't expect that. We didn't think about that option. That never crossed our mind. Where did that come from? That was the last thing I dreamed would happen. And you're helpless. You live the best life you can. You're healthy. You eat the right things. You do the right things. You put on sunscreen, whatnot. You get a cancer diagnosis. Where did that happen? How did that happen? Helpless. You plan and you plan and you plan and something happens and, and you get robbed or somebody takes things or the house burns down and, and everything's gone and, and, and you're, you're helpless no matter how best you planned. Things will happen and it will leave you helpless. And helpless isn't a good, fun place to be. And it's not a place that any of us want to be. It's not a place that any of us desire to be. It's not any pl- a place that we would want anybody that we know, even the people that we dislike in our lives, the people that just aggravate us and frustrate us and make us mad. We don't want them to end up helpless because helpless is an awful season of life to be in. And it's difficult. And Jairus, or Jairus at this moment, he sees that there's nothing that he can do. And he recognizes and he realizes, I am helpless in this situation. But just because he was helpless doesn't mean that he was hopeless. Hopeless is a very different thing than helpless. We oftentimes probably use them interchangeably in our conversations, right? We think if you're helpless, you're hopeless. Or if you're hopeless, you're helpless. That means that you you just think that's just a bad place to be and there's nothing else you can do. But they are very different things. Helpless is where you don't have the physical or the financial means to do something. Hopeless is where you have no hope at all. No hope at all. And some of us have been there. A lot of times helplessness turns into hopelessness. I mean, a lot of times it goes that way. But they are different things. And Jairus realizes, I might be helpless, but I'm not hopeless. But we see two groups in this scripture that, that were hopeless. They were hopeless. And no matter what evidence or, or what situation arose, they could not be convinced otherwise that there was no hope in this situation. And they did everything they could to help every, to make everybody else have that same level of hopelessness. Right? So I'm going to two excerpts from this scripture. We're going to read them, and then we're going to talk about them. Okay? So these are different parts. Uh, one's verse 35 and one's verse 40. Okay? So it says, while he was still speaking, this is Jesus... We, I told you I'd reference what happens between these scriptures. The, the woman with the issue of blood, that, that, that story is what happens between these, where Jesus heals a woman that had a, a blood condition. Um, and then he's still talking to the group and everything before he, he continues on and whatnot, before he leaves there. But it says, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house 
who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Pretty hopeless. Right? Comes up out of nowhere. Jesus does this great miracle. Mighty thing. Maybe Jairus was even feeling a little bit more hopeful than he was before. Jairus hadn't seen Jesus do these things. He'd heard about what he'd done. He hadn't seen Jesus do these things. But here he is and he just saw it. He just saw Jesus do a mighty work. A thing that this woman, that no doubt Jairus was familiar with, because as the ruler of the synagogue, he was the one that had to help declare people clean and unclean, that helped go through these processes. He knew this woman. He knew that she was hopeless as he was at that moment. That she had done everything that he had that he could do, that she could do, that she was still helpless. But she had hope as well. And so maybe Jairus in that moment was like, hey, I've just seen it. And I had that little bit of hope because I heard what he's done, but now I've seen what he's done, and here comes somebody up. He says, your daughter's dead. A hopeless statement. Your daughter's dead. Why don't you just leave the teacher alone? Pretty hopeless statement. I mean, I'm not any expert on bedside manner, but that's not great bedside manner. I mean, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty direct and straight to the point and and hopeless. But then we go down. Jesus tells him, he makes it what it says. Jesus says, you know, we're just still going. Just believe. Just believe. It's like, did you not just see what I just did? Just believe. And they go on. And they go into the house. And the Bible talks about how there was um, these people that were making a tumult. They were, they were mourning. They were crying. They was, at that time, you could hire people to come and mourn because it was a sign of how important this person was to you. However many people was there mourning was a sign of that. So they might have had people brought in to mourn and stuff. And maybe it might have been family too. But it says that he got there and he says, this is Jesus, the child is not dead but sleeping. Jairus' hopes were lifted up again. Oh, she's not dead. Maybe that guy was wrong. Maybe he misunderstood. Maybe, maybe this Jesus knows something I don't. But then it says, and they ridiculed him, laughed at him, scoffed at him, scorned him for even bringing up this option, this idea, this thing. They knew the facts. They knew the truth. They were there. They'd seen the body, no doubt. They knew what had went on. They knew she was dead. They scoffed at him, scorned him, ridiculed him. And then it says, and he sent them outside. Took the father and mother and the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. In this situation where Jairus was already helpless, the people that were around him were trying to make him hopeless too. But he clung to the hope that he had about the testimonies that he had heard of what Jesus was able to do and then what he saw for himself of what Jesus was able to do, not from this strange person that he'd never met, but somebody that he no doubt knew from his position and role in the community. He knew what this woman had been through. Been through. He knew what she had faced. He knew what she was going through. And now he saw the, the, the prayer answered. He saw her healed by Jesus' by Jesus's power. Hope rose and then went down. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Hope rises. But then they begin to laugh and they begin to ridicule and mock and scoff and scoff them and scorn them. He wanted to hang on to hope. But there was everybody around him was trying to tell him that there was no hope. And sadly, we we may find hope in Christ in our own lives. 
in our own situations, in our own circumstances, maybe as a new convert, new believer in Christ Jesus, and we're filled with hope and, and, and joy about what's, in, what's ahead of us, what God's going to do in our life. Or maybe we're just a Christian that has been through a difficult time and, and we hear a sermon or we hear a testimony or we hear somebody else's experience with God and, and hopes begin to lift up in us. We see God move in some way and we're like, well, maybe He can, he can still work in my situation. But the sad reality is, is that oftentimes there's people that don't have that same level of hope and belief that will seek to, maybe in good intentions, maybe in bad intentions, but will seek to try to steal your hope from that situation. You believe in Jesus, you turn your life over to Him, and you're like, I can, I'm finally going to be able to, to get over this addiction, get over this problem that I've been having, this sin that keeps bonding me and chaining me down, that keeps on rearing its head up in my life, but somebody comes up from your old life and says, you'll never be any different. You get your hopes up, and, and the world tries to jerk them down. Your marriage has been struggling and flailing for years and years and years. There's no more love in it. There's no more compassion in it. There's no communication in it. You just go home to each other and you don't care about each other. And then something happens and you hear a testimony of how God healed another marriage and you're like, maybe I, my marriage still has some hope. Maybe there's still a reason to believe in what God can do and then things come up, something comes around and says, and somebody tells you, don't you know that it usually don't happen? They start throwing around statistics of how many people get divorced in America and they they talk about how you just need to go on and move on. And they try to steal that hope that you've been, been given, that's been renewed in your life. You get diagnosed with something extreme like cancer or some other kind of condition or something that's terminal, that doesn't have a good diagnosis. But you have hope. Because you've seen Jesus move before and you've seen Him answer prayers before and you believe in Him and you have faith in Him and you trust in Him. But then somebody comes, don't, don't you know the statistics? Don't you know the odds? Don't you know the probability of what's going to happen? You just need to go ahead and give up. Give up hope and just make the best of your last days. Don't, don't have any kind of hope for anything. Don't put your hope in Jesus. Don't put your hope in anything. It's, it's already over. And the enemy wants to do everything he can to steal our, our hope. Because Satan knows that we get our strength during trying times from our hope and faith in Jesus. That what get keeps us going, that what gives us strength, that what help, helps us overcome the difficult times in our life, that what helps us persevere and continue through is that faith and hope in, that Jesus, in Jesus Christ being able to do anything and everything and abundantly more than we could dream of. And the enemy wants to steal that from you and rob you of that and leave you hopeless and dreary and not have any kind of desire to move on or do anything anymore because if he has you there, then that's what he wants because that causes grief and pain for Christ because he doesn't want to see you in that situation because he came to give you hope. came to give you that hope. And if you ask any Christian that's, that's been on the way, that's followed Jesus for, for any time, they're going to tell you that the enemy will even begin to try to steal your hope and your faith and knowing that you've even been saved or that it even matters that you follow Christ. The enemy wants to take any hope that we have and crush it because he doesn't want God's people to be full of joy. He doesn't want God's people to be full of hope because then we're an example to a world that really is hopeless and helpless. If he can make us just as hopeless as the world around us, then there's going to be no desire for anybody to follow the Lord. But it's the hope that we have that we can show to the world around us that they're like, I want that same hope. I don't want to feel hopeless. I don't want to feel like I don't have a chance. I don't want to feel like there's nothing that I can turn to. I want that hope. 
And we as Christians can be confident that we have hope through and by Jesus Christ. That we have that hope. As we, as we go have our baptism here in a little bit, um, I want to just explain and go over this idea for just a minute. Okay? Jairus went through a process where he first had to recognize that he was helpless to do anything about his current situation. As long as Jairus felt like he had some option, that there was something he could do, something that he could change, something that somebody that he could pay, or somebody that he, something he could do to fix his situation, he would have done it. But he had to recognize, I am helpless in this situation. But then he also had to recognize, because all we do is recognize that we're helpless, and we never turn to the hope that, God, that we have in Christ. We're just, we're just a, a sad, broken people that doesn't want to get up in the morning, that doesn't want to try, that doesn't want to keep going. If all we think of is how helpless we are. But when we recognize that we're helpless, but that we also recognize that we're not hopeless, we can turn to Christ for everything that we need. And that's the exact thing that happened with, with Chloe and Ashley. They recognized in their sin that they were helpless to do anything about it. Like any man, woman, boy, or girl that's ever been born on this earth, we are helpless to change anything about our sin. We are born into sin, and we will continue in sin as long as we live, and we will face the punishment and the consequences of sin and die and spend eternity in hell and the lake of fire and torment in that, in, in that world with, with, without something changing because we are helpless to change that. I am helpless to change that. You are helpless to change that in your life. It's not going to happen. That's just the reality. Be as good as you want to. The Pope in himself, all his good actions, all his good deeds, whatever it is, people who give the most, people who serve the most, people who are, who are the nicest, people who help the most people, whatever it is, they are helpless within themselves to make enough difference in, in their, the world around them, in their own lives, to save themselves from the consequences of sin. We are helpless. That's what Chloe and Ashley recognize. That's what anybody that's been saved has recognized, that we are helpless to change the sin in their lives on our own. But they also recognized that they weren't hopeless. That through Jesus Christ, and as we talked about the past couple of weeks in the gospel message, we said the gospel message was because of our sins, Christ died, was resurrected so that we could receive mercy, salvation, forgiveness, whatever you want in there that, that you know, works there. And you have to recognize that you still have hope. And that hope comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen. That you might be helpless, and you might be weak, and you might not be able to do anything for yourself, and you might be in a destitute, in a desolate place, and you might be struggling just to get through each and every day, and you're, you're, you're helpless. You're helpless, but you're not hopeless. Because God loves broken and hurting and messed up and, and, and people that just have problems and issues. He loves them, and He wants to be their hope. He sees you as helpless, but he wants to be the hope and not leave you hopeless. Right. Amen. And that's not just when we're lost, but that's when we're saved as well. He doesn't want us to live a life as a, as a saved person, as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, full, always feeling hopeless, always feeling like there's no hope in life, no hope in the world around us, no hope for our neighbors, no hope for our situation. He wants you to recognize and embrace and celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I get the world's a rough place. I'm not oblivious to it. 
I'm not living with rose-colored glasses thinking the world's hunky-dory. It don't matter who you ask, somebody's got a problem with something. It don't matter where you go, there's issues there too. It don't matter what skin color you are, what culture you come from, whatever it may be, your education level, your demographic, and whatever you're going through, it doesn't matter about those things. You've got problems. You've got issues. It can seem bad. But we aren't hopeless because we have Jesus Christ. Amen. The creator and the ruler of everything. And I'm thankful that, that just as Jairus went through that, that process, that thought process, I'm helpless, can't do anything. You've got to recognize that. You've got to realize that. You've got to accept that. As long as you think you still can do something in your own power, you'll keep trying to do something in your own power. We've got to recognize and embrace and accept we're helpless to change the issue of sin. And there's a lot of other issues that will come up in our life that we're helpless to do anything about, about as well. But we also must recognize that we are not hopeless. That middle ground is a bad place to be. When you go from helpless and you don't go all the way to realizing you're not hopeless, that's a rough place to be. Because you feel like there's no reason to keep on living at that place. But you can get to that point where you recognize, you realize, and you embrace it. And you believe it. That you are not hopeless because of what Christ has done. Because of the gift that He has given. Because of Him offering Himself to you. Then we can be filled with joy and happiness and contentment no matter what state that we are in. No matter what situation we're going through. No matter how bad everything else around us is. No matter how helpless we are to do anything about what's going on in our life. We can recognize that we're not hopeless and find joy in that. I'm thankful that Chloe and Ashley recognized this. That they, they looked at their life uh, and recognized that, hey, you know, I get that sin's a real thing. And I get that I can't do anything about it in my own power. I'm helpless. But I also recognize that because Christ came and gave his life for me, I'm not hopeless. And that I can have joy and a hope in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my friend, as the one who's changed my life. And they they offered themselves to him. They they sought to, they they reached out to him and said, Lord, enter enter my heart, live within me, change my life. Give me the hope that you have offered me and everybody else freely. I want to have that forgiveness, that mercy that you came to give us. I want that hope. As we go and baptize, recognize that it's not the baptism that gives them hope. It's not the baptism that changes them anything besides getting them wet, right? You know, I mean, they'll they'll go down dry, they come up wet, and that's 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 the physical thing that happens with with baptism. The change has already occurred in their life. They've already went through that process of understanding they're helpless, but with Christ they're not hopeless. And they accepted that hope that He has given them, that He has offered them. And I'm thankful that we have all been given hope. But they go for the baptism just to show you, to remind themselves, to show the world around them that, hey, there was something that happened internally that my baptism is just showing externally. That I'm going down with Christ and I'm being raised up, resurrected with hope. That I didn't have before. Amen. And I'm thankful that we have that hope. That no matter how young or how old you are. You can have that hope. It's a hope that's given freely. It's a hope that's given without judgment. It's a hope that's given without requirements. Just to love him. And then let him work on you. Let him love you. Let him be there with you. Invite him into your life. And he'll take care of the rest. Amen. And I'm thankful for that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. As I sing. If you feel the need to come.